Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to start today talking about the slaughter of 19 children in Texas. Just talking about the carnage that we're permitting in our nation and the tensions that exist between freedom and safety and how they are driving that carnage. Then we're going to talk about land in the city of Detroit and a proposal to tax it differently in order to bring tax relief to beleaguered homeowners. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. How long will it be before the next time somebody takes a gun, a high-powered, fast-shooting rifle, and walks into a school or a church or a grocery store and kills a lot of people in a flash. Is it days? Is it weeks? Is it months? We know that the answer can't be much longer than that. Not in this country. It hasn't been. Not for a really long time. We keep doing this over and over and over again. And so here we are today trying to make sense, trying to figure out what we're supposed to do in response to the deaths of 19 children and two teachers in a Texas elementary school. Are you surprised? Seriously? Are you shocked? I understand the other range of emotions that I think we're all feeling right now. The anger, the frustration. But you can't really say that you're surprised that this happened. Not if you've been paying attention. There's... 400 million guns in this country. That's more guns than people. And every couple of weeks, every couple of months, somebody takes one of those guns, or a couple of them, and does something horrific. I'm done trying to express enough emotion to try to inspire change here. I, I, I don't know I don't know what would work. How many dead kids do we have to know about? How many dead grocery shoppers do we have to learn about? How many times do we have to hear about the ease with which somebody gets their hands on a weapon that can slice children into tiny bits in a matter of seconds. Wonder about what's going on with that person, why they did it. There isn't a point beyond which we're willing to say enough. There doesn't seem to be enough of an impetus to action, inspired by horror. And so I think we have to maybe start talking in just very stark and logical terms about all of this. What are the practical things that can be done? 
don't think we can solve this problem entirely because it is an American problem. It is a reflection of not just who we are right now, the way we relate to each other, the way we think of guns. It's a reflection of who we have always been in this country. This is a violent country. By many measures, the most violent nation to ever exist on the planet. Born of the plundering of a native nation. Built on the toil of people stolen from another continent. And defended over and over and over again through violence, expanded through violence. So I don't think we can ever imagine that that history and the present don't create these kinds of incidents. But we can make them rarer. We can make it harder. We can make a lot of things make way more sense than they already do. We're here again today, changing the program that we had planned for Detroit today to talk about carnage, absolute carnage. The image that sticks most in my mind from yesterday is the one of the line of parents outside the school where this happened walking in to give DNA samples so they could match them with the remains of slaughtered children. That's how much damage, that's how much absolute violence was done inside this school. So, I don't know. What are we supposed to do? How do we get to a better place? I have a few ideas, and I'm going to throw them out there. And then I want to hear from you. What are your ideas? How do we change the narrative here? On my list are background checks, universal background checks. The support for that in this country is near universal, and yet we can't get Congress to enforce it, to adopt it, to say, this is how we're going to live in this country. Also on my list is weapons regulation. Why do we regulate hand grenades if you can just walk to the corner store and buy an AR-15, which does almost the same amount of damage in almost the same amount of time? We need to have a practical conversation about What's a reasonable gun for somebody to be able to buy and possess? Is that any gun we can invent? That doesn't make sense to me. I don't think that's what the Constitution was talking about. Why can't we have a conversation about what's reasonable? I also think we need to talk about the connection between legal gun sales and illegal use. Who's responsible for that? Who should be responsible for it? I don't think the answer is nobody. It's not just the person doing it. Why can't we discuss how to discourage sales of these kinds of weapons to people who intend to use them for, well, the only purpose that they are made for, killing a lot of people. And last on my list, and far from least, is young men. 99% of these crimes are committed by young men in our country. And here's Another fact, 
the overwhelming majority of those young men are white young men. Why aren't we talking about white culture in this country? The culture that is producing the people who do these things. In this case, in Texas, it was a Latino young man. But he's in the minority. The distinct minority here. Just a few weeks ago, we were talking about Buffalo, where a young white man drove hundreds of miles into a city to go kill African Americans. Flip the demographics here. If this were happening, and it were African American young men doing it all the time, how much would we be talking about black culture? How much would we be talking about black responsibility? How much would we be talking about black families and how they raise their children? Seems to me we have a conversation to be had about white America. How is it producing these killers? I want to open up the phones and social media, hear your ideas, hear your reactions. As always, the number is 313-577-1019, 313-577-1019. You can go to Facebook, you can go to Twitter, and leave comments there. But before we get to callers, I want to play a little sound. There were so many sounds yesterday that caught my attention, people reacting to this, talking about it. The one that stood out, though, is a clip of Senator Chris Murphy, who represents Connecticut, who really, I think, embodies just the desperation, the exhaustion of this moment. What are we doing? Why do you spend all this time running for the United States Senate? Why do you go through all the hassle of getting this job? of putting yourself in a position of authority, if your answer is that as this slaughter increases, as our kids run for their lives, we do nothing. What are we doing? Why are you here? If not to solve a problem as existential as this. Why are you here? Great question. Great question for everybody in the Senate. Great question for everybody in the House. Why are you here? Gun rights are enshrined in our Constitution. No question about that. I would have it be different. I would amend the Constitution to say something really different. But look, that's the Constitution we have. It is not a pact with carnage. It is not a pact with self-destruction, and that is what we've decided it should be. That makes no sense. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's start with Sally in Milford. Sally, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you. Um, Yeah, I just am as saddened and, and disgusted and frustrated as, you know, so many other people are, and I just had a question that, I'm hoping, can someone explain to me the relationship between money and the lobbyists and what the lobbyists, how they are controlling our laws? Um, It doesn't make any sense where the majority of the country wants certain things to happen with gun laws, and yet a company. I thought the NRA had gone bankrupt, and yet they still have money to pay lobbyists and, uh, and, 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 and in, influence our laws, mm-hmm. even though they are a minority. Thank you. Yeah. Sally, it's a great question, and there are very complicated explanations uh, that, I, that uh, I, I would encourage you to, to, to go to the internet, go to Google, and look up how lobbying works. But but quite simply, uh, the First Amendment to our Constitution allows us 
to petition for a redress of grievances, which is interpreted as uh, us being able to go to our lawmakers and say, hey, here's what I want. Here's what I think uh, the policy ought to look like in our country. Uh, Over time, that has morphed into modern lobbying, which is about whose voice gets heard in that process. Uh, People with money uh, have more access because they can support people's campaigns or not support people's campaigns. More importantly, I think the thing that the NRA has done, if you look through uh, their contributions, they don't give as much money to representatives as you might think they do. But what they have is this uh, this threat, really, that they can hold over over lawmakers' heads. If you vote for uh, gun regulation, if you don't, uh, you know, make it easy for gun manufacturers to distribute their weapons, uh, we will run someone against you. We'll support somebody who uh, who will. And you know, the truth is that in the, the system that we have, because of the way districts are carved up, because of uh, the U.S. Senate and the way it is structured, uh, minority voices sometimes can hold the majority. They can get what they want, even though most people don't. And that's, a, that's kind of the complicated part of it. And uh, again, I think there are some really good explanations that you can find on Google. But there's no question that that needs to look different than it does. The protections that exist in our country for minority interests were protections against tyrannical majorities. They weren't intended to create tyrannical minorities, which is what we're suffering in in many different places. It's not just uh, gun legislation where uh, a minority uh, interest, gun manufacturers, have their complete way uh, with the laws in our country. Um, think of the other issues that, uh, that, that are, are controlled by minority interests. That was never the intent uh, in the framing of this country, and it has reached, I think, kind of an apex in the last 10 or, or, or 20 years as the country has been more divided, as you have uh, a party, the GOP, that is dying demographically and must resort to these kinds of uh, minority set-asides in order to have any power. Um, it is not a good situation, and, and it is perpetuating the things that we're dealing with. These shootings uh, are tied to the inability of the majority to regulate guns in a sensible way. Uh, Sally, I really appreciate uh, the question or the call and uh, the question. Let's go next to Lindsay in uh, Royal Oak. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me on and having this really important discussion. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to make a really quick point about elected officials and how I kind of think that this is probably the most important election of our lifetimes this fall. I've been volunteering in gun violence prevention for about seven years now. Um, My son was a baby when Sandy Hook happened, so as soon as he was a little older, I had a little time to get in the fight. I joined, and we're so close to having a majority of folks here in Michigan that could make the change, but until we elect enough, we're just in a stalemate. So I would encourage people to do their research and vote for people who will actually vote for things like background checks and red flag laws and a domestic violence law, that kind of thing. Um, And then aside from my work in gun violence prevention, just my personal take, um, on the mental health side, why are we handing guns out to folks who haven't even had their prefrontal cortex fully formed yet? Apparently, mm-hmm. that does not get formed until you're about age 25. That's the part of the brain that deals with impulse. Yeah. Um, Judgment. So, yeah, maybe yeah. we need to be thinking about that part, too. So that's my little hot take on that. Yeah, so Lindsay, absolutely. Needs to vote. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right, um, uh, Lindsay. That's something we ought to be talking about. One of the Little data points in yesterday's tragedy is the change in 2021 to Texas gun laws that um, that permitted certain 18-year-olds to go and buy weapons. Um, not very smart. Uh, and in this case, uh, tragic, because uh, the news reports are saying that uh, the young man who did this um, went and bought at least 
some of the weapons that he owned, on his 18th birthday. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue talking uh, about this carnage in Texas that killed 19 children and two teachers. Uh, we want to continue to hear from you on the phones, on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about the carnage that was unleashed on 19 children in Uvalde, Texas yesterday, and how it connects to the horrible, horrible culture of violence uh, that we live with in this country. Uh, I am tired, I think, as most people are, of trying to express enough emotion to try to get things to change in this country. Um, instead, I'm just trying to throw out some ideas that make common sense, some things that we ought to alter about gun laws, about the way we think about our culture, the way we think about young men in this country, the way we think about white young men in this country, the overwhelming perpetrators of this violence. Why aren't we talking about these things in practical terms. Uh, I want to hear from you as well on the phones. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go next to Joel in Monroe. Joel, welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing, Stephen? Thanks for Good. taking my call. Uh-huh. Um, I, my, my comment is, is simply, uh, I, don't, I don't blame the guns. I blame the lack of uh, mental preparedness or mental screening. Um, people just don't, I, don't, I don't know why our country doesn't take our mental health more seriously. Um, all these people that are creating these tragedies they have mental issues that are going unnoticed and untreated. And... I, I don't blame the weapon. I, I blame the, the psychi- psychological state of the person who's committed them. Hmm. And so we address that and screen for that. Even like for, for gun sales, if you haven't had a mental health screening, you get no business purchasing a gun. Uh, um, Joel, Joel, I absolutely agree with you um, in part, uh, but, but I want to make a couple of, of, of points. No question, mental health screening should be part of buying a weapon. Uh, I, I, I don't think there's anything uh, unwise or uh, overly intrusive about that. But uh, here, are, here are a couple of things to think about. Mental illness is not more prevalent in this country than it is in other countries. We don't have more people facing more problems than they do in Europe or Australia or the rest of the Western world. What we do have is easier access to guns. What we do have is more guns in circulation than those countries have. And so I think um, mental illness plays a role, no question, in a lot of the violence that we see uh, in our country. But the reason that that mental illness results in tragedies like what we saw yesterday is because it is so easy to get a gun. Uh, it's not in other countries, which is why they don't see those things. The other point I would make is I think it's really dangerous to pin these kinds of issues on one thing. And if you notice, when I gave my list of ideas about things to change, there were a, there were a lot of different things on there. It's not just about guns. It's also about mental health. It's also about culture. Either ors, I think, don't really serve us well 
in thinking these kinds of things through. It's both and and everything else, right? This is an American problem. This is an American culture that produces this. That's not just about guns. You're absolutely right. But it is also about guns. The other thing I don't love about the invocation of mental illness here is there are lots and lots of people who struggle with mental illness or some sort of mental impairment. And the vast majority of them, they never do this. This isn't about that for the most part. This really is about when people who are unstable in some way get access to guns, when they can go to the corner store, as I said, and buy a weapon that can kill 19 children in a few seconds. Joel, I really do appreciate the call and the comments, though. Uh, let's go next to Phyllis in Warren. Phyllis, welcome yes, to the show. Hi, Stephen. I appreciate your monologue today and all your comments. It's it's a, a kind of a very thoughtful and thought-provoking thing that that you did today, and this is important. My my absolute perfect theory, of course, is that why not have government-controlled weapons sales? Why can't you get weapons uh, ammunition only at a government store? You may buy guns for the purpose of having a gun, but you cannot get any ammunition for that gun unless it's sold through a government-controlled store. If we could do it with alcohol, and we still do, then why can't we do it with ammunition? You can't get any ammunition. How it's restricted, let it be restricted to the handgun, for example, Mm -hmm. unless you're in the police or something else and you need some type of other ammunition. And to have the uh, automatic weapons that we see is insane. I, I the fact that it is a white problem is distressing to me because it should not be. But white people have become the kind of uh, mental um, and physical uh, uh, perpetrators of so much power that they do as they please. I do not like that. I don't know how to change that except to dye everybody a different color. What if they were blue? What would (laughs) happen to them then? (laughs) And there were blue people, and there had been for some time. They may now be all dissipated, but there are blue people, were blue people. And... That, so but, Phyllis, Phyllis, I think I think that's a, I, I, that's a really thought provoking call, and um, you're you're absolutely right about regulation. Regulation of ammunition is something that I think we ought to be talking more about. Uh, the difference, though, between guns or ammo and uh, something like alcohol is. Of course, the Constitution. Um, And listen, I I, I said earlier, I don't agree that the Second Amendment, as it's written, should be part of the modern Constitution in this country. I would support uh, something really different, maybe eliminating it altogether, uh, maybe something that uh, that gave government uh, more ability to keep people safe from, from, from these kinds of things. But the truth is that that is the constitution that we have. And it does, uh, it does prevent us from, I think, the kind of sensible regulation that, uh, that we might imagine. It does not, however, prevent us from some really basic things. Uh, some of the things that I talked about, background checks, those aren't unconstitutional. Uh, it is not unconstitutional to look into the connection between legal gun sales and illegal activity and try to uh, assess uh, responsibility for that. Uh, Those are things that we can do. And we have chosen not to do those things, uh, which means that we have chosen to live with all of the crazy things that are, that are happening. Uh, Phyllis, really appreciate the the call uh, and the question. Uh, Let's go to Ashley in South Lyon. Ashley. Hi, Stephen. 
What's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. I Hi. so admire your ability to be so collected. Well, uh, that is what they asked me to do um, here. <laughs> what's on my mind is there's grassroots groups like Moms for Liberty that are so dead set against mask mandates in school and textbooks that might mention same-sex couples, and they are completely silent today on Instagram, mm. which is very telling. Yeah. Yeah. Ashley, th- that is, I think, a, an important dimension of this. What people are obsessed with, what people are focused on right now, and what they're not. Um, I, I, I have a lot of respect, at least in theory, for people who say that they are pro-life. I think if you believe that uh, that uh, life, all life is sacred, then that there's nothing there's nothing about that position I can argue with. I mean, I think there's a liberty question with regard uh, to, to to childbirth that that has to be balanced against that. But but I don't I don't think you're wrong if you are pro-life. But if you're pro-life, if you're pro-innocent life, how can you not be absolutely exercised today? How can you not? think that children sitting in a school, people shopping in a grocery store, people worshiping in a church or synagogue aren't worthy of the same kind of extreme government protection that some of my pro-life friends want for the unborn, that they want for the minds of their children in school to protect them from quote-unquote, dangerous ideas. I mean, there's a false echo to all of that when something like this happens. Are you really pro-life? Or do you just want to control the things that you care about and not control them for yourself, control them for other people? I think a lot of people have to look in the mirror today and, and really ask themselves, what they stand for, what do you believe, and what are you willing to do to express that belief? Okay, coming up, we are going to pivot and talk about how Detroit can boost its tax revenue by taxing land differently than it taxes buildings. Really interesting idea to deal with the sky-high taxes, property taxes that we pay here in the city of Detroit. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. Stephen Henderson and as always... Thanks for tuning in. When you drive through Detroit, do you ever wonder, how come there's so much empty land? City blocks that look like meadows and are full of pheasants and overgrown grass. We know the stories. We know the reasoning. There was incredible racial unrest in our city. There was white flight, lack of employment opportunities, Incredible disinvestment. That's what created the prairie-like places that we see all over our city. But taxes are also a large part of this narrative, and they often get left out. Compared to other major American cities, Detroit has some of the highest property tax rates. Any of us who live in the city can talk about the crazy numbers that we see on that tax bill every year. And when you pair that with some of the lowest property values, it's easy to see how homeowners suffer. A new study published by the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy offers an alternative that might help those of us who own homes in the city of Detroit and encourage more development on much of this empty land. 
It's called split rate property taxation. And it suggests that land be taxed five times more when it's empty than when there's a building on it. Now, this would be something that had a profound effect on speculators in the city. Speculators like the Illich family, for instance, who have sat on a lot of vacant land for a really long time. And then in our neighborhoods, think of the folks who go, for instance, to the tax auction each year and just sweep up uh, properties in the hope that uh, they might be worth more someday and that they could make a profit. There's a lot of empty land in this city, so much that it defies many practical solutions that you might employ in other places. So the question is, is split rate taxation one of the ways that we get back to a rational market for real estate and taxation in Detroit? John Anderson is co-author of the study from the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, and he's here with us to explain exactly how split-rate taxation works, where it's already used, and how this could help rescue Detroit from another possible bankruptcy. John Anderson, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's start with a definition. What is split-rate property taxation? Yeah, that's a good place to start. It's uh, unlike the traditional property tax, which applies the same tax rate to both the value of the land and the value of a structure that may be on the land. Uh, in this case, you split the rates and you apply a higher rate of taxation to the land portion of the property value and a lower rate to the improvements or the buildings uh, value portion of the uh, property value. So uh, you, you can split the rate, uh, and, but the basic idea is a higher tax on land relative to the tax on structures. And the goal here, uh, I, I think it's 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 not it's not terribly uh, difficult to grasp, but but it's not all that obvious. Why would this Why would this help Detroit homeowners if we did this? Well, yeah, that's a good question. And and when we think about uh, the the impacts of uh, property taxation, uh, we're thinking about two primary goals, right? The uh, one goal is the efficiency of the tax system, and the other is the equity of the tax system. And so from an efficiency point of view, uh, we're talking about the, the extent to which the tax uh, distorts markets, either markets for land or uh, real estate markets for structures. And so we, we don't want the tax to uh, create the distortions in uh, the real estate market. Uh, so what would happen with a higher tax on land, of course, is that it would discourage the holding of vacant land, as you have uh, mentioned already, and it would remove the disincentive there is for making improvements on the land, uh, developing the land or redeveloping the land and putting structures on it. So uh, that, that side of it is the efficiency effects, right? Discouraging the holding of vacant land and encouraging uh, the development uh, of, of, the, of the land with uh, uh, structures. The, uh, the other goal, of course, is uh, has to do with equity, fairness in the property tax system, and we care about that uh, immensely as well. And in this case, the uh, our estimates uh, of a two-rate two or split-rate uh, property tax system in Detroit would result in a reduction in uh, property tax bills for uh, the vast majority of residential property owners in the city. And of course, lower property tax bills would result in higher uh, property values uh, for those homeowners. Yeah. So uh, as part of your study, you looked at some municipalities in Pennsylvania that adopted these split rate tax systems. I'm wondering if you can talk about how it worked out for them and whether we could expect the same results in a city like Detroit, which, as I was saying in the open, is really kind of different from uh, from most other cities in the sense of its size and and how much vacant land we have uh, essentially created over the last fifty years. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. And uh, so uh, we commissioned uh, several uh, background studies as part of, of the larger study here. And one of those focused specifically on Pennsylvania cities where they have implemented split rate taxes. Uh, approximately 20 cities in Pennsylvania have had or currently have uh, split rate taxes. Most notably, the city of Pittsburgh, uh, which had a split rate tax regime for quite a few years. Uh, uh, and in particular, uh, during the 1970s and 80s, when uh, Pittsburgh was uh, a declining uh, industrial city uh, due to the steel industry. So not, not completely unlike Detroit in that uh, regard. Some of the other uh, Pennsylvania cities we looked at are smaller, of course, and, and maybe not uh, as comparable to the city of Detroit. But the, uh, the analysis of, uh, of the impacts of split rate taxation in uh, the Pittsburgh cities were incorporated into our thinking about uh, what could happen in Detroit. The evidence is that the, uh, the split rate system uh, encouraged uh, business formation or business location in those Pennsylvania cities. Cities, uh, which would uh, be beneficial. We think the same thing uh, would be likely to happen in Detroit uh, as a result of the uh, implementation of a split rate uh, tax system. Uh, so increased uh, business activity uh, and increased overall property values as a result of the split rate system. The uh, the, the, the value of land uh, may go down somewhat according to our estimates, but the, uh, the overall property values go up because of the uh, lighter taxation of the structures. Mm -hmm. I want to introduce another voice to uh, this conversation. Uh, Allie Gross is a freelance journalist based here in Detroit, and she has been uh, covering real estate issues in Detroit from a lot of different angles, uh, like speculation, land loss, gentrification, and uh, other issues. Allie, uh, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I, I wonder if you can talk first about how land speculation, which is what drives a lot of, I think, the, the, the existence of empty land in Detroit, um, harms Detroiters. Uh, what is this speculation about and, and how is it affecting those of us who own houses here? Sure. Um, so, um, speculators, are, as, as you just pointed out, they're kind of a blight in the city and their kind of game plan is to buy property and then just kind of wait. Um, wait until there's maybe a development nearby or more people are moving to the neighborhood and property values start increasing. And then they might do something with the property. But the idea is that during that waiting game, uh, they try to keep their expenses as low as possible. And so they are doing very little with that land that they are sitting on, typically purchased from uh, the Wayne County tax auction. The University of Michigan Dearborn report on the consequences of speculative bulk buying um, found that speculators accounted for 90% of all purchases at the auction uh, between 2005 and 2015. Um, so for many purchasers, purchasers, it just makes more financial sense to just wait. And the current tax scheme doesn't exactly discourage that. Um, when taxes are low for just land, it's it's easy then. You don't have it's there's not a lot of pressure to make a choice of what you're gonna do. Waiting can feel like a great option for these speculators. Yeah. Um, and uh, Allie, do you think this is something that if we put it into the mix would would help uh, Detroit homeowners? Would this uh, would this break the grip that speculators have? Uh, on this vacant land, and would it make make rates better, I guess, uh, over time for, for homeowners? Yeah. Um, when I spoke with John's colleague, Mick Allen, um, for an article we did on split rate tax back in December, he kind of pointed out how right now the tax rate is so high in Detroit, especially for improvements, that the only way for developers to do business in the city is really through tax abatement. And Mick kind of compared the split rate tax to an abatement, um, that's more spread out equitably, so it's not just a few people getting it um, or big developers, but that this would help a lot of homeowners see their tax 
will go down. I think also there it, there's two sides to this. So it helps it could help homeowners. But then I think the discouragement of the speculator also helps homeowners because we know that property values, safety in neighborhood, they all go down because when speculation occurs, when blight occurs. And so uh, having recourses in place that could discourage this sort of practice uh, seems like a win overall. Um, I, I When the piece came out, I saw some critics kind of point out that we have uh, blight uh white tickets that people could get if they're not maintaining their property. But one issue that has come up is speculators also have a lot of hold over the city. And mm-hmm. so if they have a property, for example, that is desirable uh, and there's a new development coming up, as we saw with the FCA deal back in 2019, we saw many large-scale property owners uh trade land with the city, and they came out on top. So one example I'm thinking of is Michael Kelly. Uh, He had uh, five parcels that the city wanted that he purchased between 1999 and 2003 for a couple hundred bucks. In exchange, he got 15 new properties, and he was released from more than $1.1 million in unpaid property taxes and more than 800, 800 blight tickets. Wow. Um, so I think this is a good example of why the split rate tax could be effective. Because um, if the city keeps wiping away these fines because individuals have land that they want, it's not super effective. The real answer is trying to eliminate uh, this type of speculation so that that type of trade-off doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313 1019 uh, call and tell us what you think of the idea of a split tax rate solution to uh, Detroit's great land speculation and emptiness uh, issue. Uh, Rachel in Detroit, uh, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. Uh, yeah, I'm calling in because I was just listening for my car. I'm a professor in urban regional planning and I've also done a lot of urban farming in Detroit. And mm-hmm. so the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, a project like the um, Black Land Fund for Farmers in the City, and that a very important part of Detroit's past and also current, um, you know, cultural landscape is the ability for Black communities to regain access to land in the city. Mm-hmm. So for people like, you know, friends on the east side at Freedom Freedom, or in Corktown who own Brother Nature Farm, I think something like this split tax could actually be a taxation on community forms of land use on properties that would otherwise be vacant or not used. And I think something that could be slightly more effective or even combined with something like a split tax idea is a consumption tax. And I know that's fairly (laughs) anti-American, Um, But something like a consumption tax for corporate owners, for institutional owners, as we Mm -hmm. call it in the housing justice world, or for speculators Mm -hmm. who own multiple properties who are generating an income off of those properties. So generating an income um, speculatively, knowing that they're going to be able to sell those in the future, or generating an income because they're large or even mid-sized landlords in the city. So I think something like a combined... uh, you know, split tax as well as the consumption tax is something that could prevent community forms of land use. Yeah, from being punished uh, by by something like this, Rachel. It's a it's a great question, and we have a sim- similar question on Twitter from uh, from Chase Cantrell, who says, you know, what about Detroiters who bought side lots? Uh, you know, a lot of people have you know a lot next to them that's empty. Uh, that they take care of, uh, and it was a way to to take better care of empty lots. Uh, John, I wonder if you can answer those questions. Uh, we were running out of time, of course, on the show, but uh, I, I want to have you talk about that. Yeah, well, the issue of side loss is very interesting because uh, there are also impediments uh, in Detroit in, in terms of the legal way in which you might be able to combine that side lot with your existing home lot. Uh, 
there are uh, zoning restrictions as well on uh, some of the lots in Detroit uh, in terms of uh, whether they're buildable or not. And so there, there are a number of other issues that have to be addressed here in terms of uh, updating the, the zoning codes uh, and uh, making it uh, easier for people to acquire uh, things like side lots, uh, legally combine them with the uh, uh, legal description of their existing home lot, mm -hmm. uh, and then the, looking at the uh, combined value of the uh, land and structures uh, mm -hmm. on that property. And, so, and what about community uh, ownership of, of, of land, the, these farms, right? Uh, and, and the effort to make sure African-Americans get more access to property. Yeah, that's, a, that's an important issue and uh, would have to also be looked at in terms of the, uh, the state of Michigan's uh, uh, statutes regarding uh, agricultural uh, land uh, taxation. So uh, that's, that's another factor that would have to be taken into account. Yeah. Uh, Allie, I hear you trying to jump in there. I've got about 30 seconds. I am, yeah, I'm just, this came up when I spoke with uh, John's colleague, um, Nick Allen. And you pointed out that many of the farms in Detroit are actually nonprofits, so non-taxable. And we don't pay taxes. Land, so they are leasing from the city. Yeah. Um, and another point with the side lots is just that many times side lots um, are connected. So if the actual home's prop property tax is going down while the side lot tax might go up, they typically would even out. The, the idea here is that who would really be affected are people who own over four lots, like a lot of lots in the city. Right. Is who this? We did a kind of analysis of John Hanson's properties, and we looked at what it would be without uh, the foot tax rate, and yeah. and he was paying about forty five dollars per parcel um, for his two thousand properties, and one thousand dollars for taxes on his vacant land. Under a split rate tax, it would be closer to about $120 per vacant parcel, which yes. isn't, it's a big difference and not the same, but that yeah. would add up to about $200,000. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, unfortunately, we're, we are out of time, but John Anderson and Allie Gross, I'm really glad uh, you joined us to help uh, understand split rate taxation. Thanks so much for coming on the program. You're welcome. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow and we're going to continue this conversation and our discussion about mass shootings in America, why we can't politically resolve this problem. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.